We are going to look uh, back at Mark 16 this morning, and um, before we do, let's pray and um, ask the Lord to bless our time. So, um, chapter 16, before we get into the what we want to look at this morning, I, I uh, wanted to say a couple things that were interesting as we kind of finished what uh, last week of what we would all call the... Um, um, the the end of Mark 16 as we went through verse 8. And it's really interesting to me that um, there is a something that is conspicuously absent from all four accounts of the gospel. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's there's something that's that's absent about this whole thing. What do, what do you think that is? Do you, do you read that and kind of wonder, wow, I wonder what that's all about? What do you think? It's a big deal. It's a, the whole faith rests on this, right? But they don't go into any detail about it, right? Um, it, it's really the the, resur- the any detail about the resurrection itself, and uh, you know, there's no details of of what happened at the critical moment when life flowed back into the body of Christ. Right? I mean, think about that. No gospel writer gives us any information about that. And I just thought as I contemplated that of, you know, the, the statement of inquiring minds want to know. You know, so why do you think that is? I mean, of course, none of them were eyewitnesses of it. What we actually have is just the angel there in, in um, verse 6. uh, uh that says he's not there, it kind of talks about it. But that's it in Mark's gospel about that. But they do talk, all four gospel writers do talk about the, you know, the what happened after the resurrection. And, um, but I just, you know, do you guys ever wonder in your minds when you read the resurrection accounts of what that looked like? You know, I mean, Jesus was really dead, Right. I mean, or is, you know, some of the theories that are out there uh, of that he really didn't die. There's one that's called the um, the swoon theory, you know, and, and you know, he just kind of went unconscious, you know, and, and, you know, from the loss of blood and from, I would certainly imagine that that, that amount of pain would maybe cause your body to to shut down. But did he really, really lose life? Right? I mean, did he? What do y'all think? Yes, absolutely, 100% physically dead. Right? So, you know, I want, you know, my mind, I think I've told you all before, my kids said I should have been a lawyer because I just asked way too many questions. It got, we kind of had a family joke that when they would come home, yeah, it was a blue car, Honda Accord, 1996, you know, had Firestone tires on it. You know, they would just start telling me before I would, you know, start asking. But anyway, that's how I think. So, I, you know, I just, when I read these things, I wonder, well, why didn't anybody go into any detail about this? Um, especially since our, you know, the whole Christian faith is is based on the resurrection, right? I mean, Paul tells us in... First Corinthians, that if Christ had not been raised, then our our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. You know, it, we're to be pitied among all people if this wasn't true. 
And yet the gospel writers don't give us much information other than the fact that that he did rise. So uh, I don't really have an answer as to why they don't, but didn't. But uh, but they do focus on you know what took place after the resurrection, and they they use you know language that you and I can identify with. Listen to this um, R.T. France in his uh, uh, new New International Greek Testament of commentary said this none of the gospels include an account of the actual rising of jesus from death and all assume that this has taken place at some time prior to the to the discovery of the empty tomb the setting for the discovery is remarkably down to earth this is not the stuff of heroic epic still less a story of magic and wonder and yet what underlies it is an event beyond human comprehension. The Jesus they had watched dying and being buried some 40 hours earlier is no longer dead but risen. It is in this incongruous combination of the everyday with the incomprehensible that many have found one of the most powerful and compelling aspects of the New Testament accounts, not of Jesus' resurrection, for there are none, but of how the first disciples discovered he had risen. So it goes straight to that. Isn't that interesting? And then, speaking of the wonder of Christ's um, substitutionary atonement, which is what God actually accomplished through this, uh, an anonymous Christian author from the second century wrote this, God gave his own son as a ransom for us, the only one for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for them that are mortal, for what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? O sweet exchange! O oh, unsearchable operation, O oh, benefits surpassing all expectation, that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one, and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. Isn't that good? The guy wrote that in the 200s. That's just incredible. That, And, you know, I fear really, I mean, in closing Mark's um, gospel, you know, I fear that many people today just really don't grasp that substitutionary atonement. You know, the righteousness of Christ being placed under our account. And, you know, with the rampant spread of easy believism that circles around America today, my wife and I were talking just the other day of, you know, it's one thing, I guess, maybe it's not, in my mind it is, it's one thing, you know, if you lived somewhere that was an unreached people group, and you'd never heard the gospel. You know, that that's one thing. Um, you're perishing, and, you know, for eternal condemnation. But what about the millions of people in our country that have heard and have responded to the gospel by the way that the church has asked them to respond, and it's not the right biblical way? They don't have any concept whatsoever of the righteousness of Christ being imputed under their account you know and I don't think people have to say it that way but I I certainly think you need to understand the gospel 
Right? I mean, do y'all, do you really need to understand the gospel in order to be saved? Or can you just utter a prayer and you're saved? You know, and, and that bothers me deeply because that bothers me more than the unreached people. Because somebody, a preacher or a teacher or a witness is, is telling people this is how you're saved and if you do this, you are. And that person many times has no idea of the, the uh, righteousness of Christ being imputed under their account. And that, that quote from the second century just nails it for me. That guy, he understood that. And I have great fear today that many, many, many people do not. And last week, here's an advertisement for you. Focus Publishing just released last week. Wayne Mack's first volume of commentary on um, Pilgrim's Progress, chapters 1 through 5. You need to get that. And first read Pilgrim's Progress and then read that. You know, And that, that's just such a beautiful picture in that book of what Christ has really done on our behalf, put in the form of an allegory so it's smooth and just flows. And then Wayne Mack unpacks that in, in his commentary. So... Praise God for that one. But this uh, final section of um, Mark's gospel, um, verses 9 through 20, is missing uh, from the most reliable manuscripts. Okay, so if you look in your Bible, is there anybody that's here today that has a Bible that that's not in brackets? Um is it in brackets in everybody's Bible, right? And that's an indication by the translators for you and I to understand that this is not part of the original manuscripts. And it's been studied very carefully by scholars and students of the Bible to show that this was some type of a latter, uninspired, scribal addition to the text. And... um you know, if you really look at it real closely, you, you, some things start to, to show up that kind of tell us that, you know, this probably wasn't Mark because it just doesn't fit his uh, writing style. And, um, but then if we don't have this and you just read verse 8, wow, he really ended very abruptly. What's up with that? You know, it's kind of like you're having a great in-depth conversation with somebody and they just turn around and walk away. That's kind of how it seems to end, right? Verse 8 says, And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Boom, done. Um, So, you know, without verses 9 through 20, it sounds very abrupt, incomplete, and uh, But yet, you know, we know the rest of the story, right? Because we've read it in the other gospels. So why stop there? Well, I think before we look at that, then you and I have to come to a conclusion in our minds of, well, if that's not, if 9 through 20 is not part of Scripture, then how do we know 1 through 8 is? Or better yet, how do we know chapter 1 through 16, 1 through 8 is, how do we know, you and I, for sitting here today, the average American, not that y'all are average, but, uh, you know, how do, how do we know that this really is the Word of God that we hold in our hands, that we read in our devotional times, that we pray back to God? 
how can we know that that's true? Well, uh, in the words of, listen to this quote from F.F. Bruce. He says, um, there, is, there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. All right, so these scholars are saying, you know, that there's no other old from, how do you say that word, antiquity, uh, that has more proof than the Bible does. Does anybody know what the second most from books of old uh, that has documents backing it to show that it was really written in? Does anybody know what that was? Homer's Iliad. Now, I had to Google that. What in the world is that? Evidently, it was a poem. Does it, can anybody quote it? I don't know how long it was, but uh, it's pretty long. Is it like one of John Piper's poems? Uh, you ever read Piper's poetry? It's like 80 pages, you know. It's like, wow, really good, but, you know, you can't be memorizing that. Uh, so, but yeah, um, and there's 643 surviving copies of Homer's Iliad. All right, that's a lot, right? I mean, 643 copies. Um, I, uh, well, does anybody have anything really old, you know, that, that you may have one of the only ones left? I'm You're all, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're not one of the only ones left, though, right? What, I mean, do y'all, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, I, I thought of, uh, and if you've got one of these, we need to talk, you need to give it to me. Um, Honest Wagner, anybody know him? Baseball card. You know, there's only a couple of those, and they're worth millions if you happen to find one. Um, you know, and how do you know that's, how, how do you know that if you've got one of the originals? What would you do to, to show that? What do you think? A certificate of authenticity, sure. You look at the original. Yeah, you look at the original, right? And that's, that's what scholars have done with the scriptures. They've gone and they've studied these old, old, old manuscripts. How do you know those are right? What do you think? Because you keep going back in history and looking at other old ones, right? And that, that's what people do. That sounds like a pretty cool job, doesn't it? That you can go back and research like that. But So there's 643 copies of, of Homer's Iliad. Does any, take a stab of how many uh, copies of the New Testament. Which, by the way, a lot of the ones we've got are only 25 years removed from the original. Has anybody got a, a, just a guess? Thousands. Well, if you, if you include uh, Latin and Ethiopic, there's actually 25,000 manuscripts. I mean, 25,000, that's a lot. You think maybe it's kind of true? If there's that many of them. And then additional testimony from the, the uh, Nicene Church Fathers. Uh, they have 32,000 citations or allusions to the New Testament text, right? So there are lots and lots and lots of manuscripts, portions of manuscripts and, and things that like in 1940-something they found what? The Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, some guy's walking by, pitches a rock, it goes in a cave, tink, you know, you hear something goes in there and looks. 
there's a, some kind of clay vessel, they open it up, there's scriptures in it. How do we know those? Sure, absolutely. You know, and then there was new information there. Well, what if that's not true? Well, it was so close to the other stuff that scholars can go there. And by the way, um, if you adhere to an old translation of the Bible, then those things aren't even in there. You know, so that's something to consider as well, right? So why all this, why do you think God, through his providential care has allowed all of these manuscripts to still be around. Have you ever searched for something in your home that you wrote two weeks ago? And you what? Where in the world is it? Right? Well, maybe it's on that computer. Well, the cloud thing kind of seems to join it all together. I don't get that. But, you know, I got a new computer and all of a sudden everything from my one upstairs is on my laptop now. I didn't put it on there. Where did it come from? the cloud did it either that or the little computer genie but um you know have you ever wondered though i mean you do you lose stuff like that and you and you sometimes you have to rewrite it and um but god in his providence has preserved his word and i I think that's that that's a great uh, and not only has god preserved his word but even in the poorest portions of our world, what is true the majority of the time of children? They're being taught to read, right? You ever think about that? And I think God, he's got to be behind that too because of Romans 7, uh, Romans 10, somewhere around verse 17, hearing, you know, hearing the word, reading the word, you know, people understand the word. That's This is the means. God is use, using this written word as the means of proclaiming himself to mankind for the purpose of salvation. And so it's, uh, it's just interesting that he would preserve so much of it. And uh, there's another portion of the New Testament that's in brackets that uh, was uh, inserted into a, at a later, later time. Does anybody know what that one is? John 7, 53 through 8, 11. And that's the story of um, the uh, lady coming and asking for forgiveness of sins to Jesus and the disciples and others are around there and kind of tell her, you know, that she's, too wicked to be forgiven and Jesus draws in the sand and says, you know, let the first uh, without sin cast a stone on her. And that that's inserted as well. The scholars are telling us that that is not part of the original manuscript. So Mark's account here where this is inserted, the point of that is that this isn't the only place in the New Testament where that's uh, uh, the case. But you know, praise God for um, uh, the fact that these ancient manuscripts have survived and scholars are able to determine the original text with an extremely high degree of accuracy for you and I. So we have to come in our minds to a point of knowing, um, can I really trust it? You know, 
is, is this, this is an ESV, can I really trust it? Is this really the Word of God? You know, so w- for me to say that, I'm, I'm, um, I'm relying on men a lot smarter than myself to come to that conclusion. So are you all right with that? Because man makes mistakes. What do you think? Are you okay with that? Personally, I am. Because we got, I mean, Drew went to seminary. He learned the original language, languages. He could, he could pick up um, one of the old things and go like that with it, and he could read it. And that's, you know, he could look at one of the originals. So would you trust Drew? Look at him sitting there, <laughs> smiling, you know. I mean, I think that's what we have to get to. But what is common with every one of us here? We all are indwelt with the Spirit of God, right? And, and there's a commonality of brotherhood, sisterhood in the faith, right? And, and we've got to, we, so we trust the translators. And then we, as far as trusting our preachers, what do we use for that? I mean, do you just blanket everything Pastor Shane says is true? I'm not even going to worry about checking it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right? Because we know he studies a lot, right? But what if something rubbed you a little bit one Sunday? What are you to do? Yeah. Yeah. Be as the Bereans, right, in Acts 17. But part of what I'm getting at is praise God for the men that God has raised up to study his word, and then has a calling on their life to teach it to you and I. You know what? The, the amount of school these guys go to, they could be making a whole lot more money than churches pay them for the amount of education that they have, right? So there's a calling on their life to sacrifice some things of the world in order to teach you and I, you know? And we ought to uphold them for that and applaud them for that and love them for that. But you and I can stand fully assured this morning that the Bibles that we have are truly the Word of God and that we can study them, be changed by the living God by them. And, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a few things to look at maybe if you would like to dispel further why verses 9 through 20 aren't part of the original text. And one of the, the things is, is just how awkward and disjointed the transition is from verse 8 to verse 9. I mean, look how verse 8, and, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, talking about the women, right? And they said, that nothing, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Okay, and then 9, now... When he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. The word now implies continuity with the preceding narrative. Whenever you use that, you know, that's, that's what you're doing. You're bringing the two together. But the focus of verse 9, is that not an abrupt shift from what he was just talking about? The ladies leaving the tomb to Mary Magdalene and... Ha- and and instead of continuing the discussion about all the ladies leaving the tomb, all of a sudden we're right there. And, and wouldn't it be really odd for Mark to wait to the very end of his gospel to introduce Mary Magdalene as if for the first time, which it wasn't because he did it two other times. 
and now all of a sudden he brings her back, and this is the first mention of the demons, right? He would have, if he was wanting to talk about that, he would have introduced her like that back in chapter 15, verse 40, the first time he mentions her, but he doesn't. And then a similar discontinuity regarding Peter, who singled out in verse 7, which is part of the original text, and yet he's not mentioned at all in verses 9 through 20. That would be really odd. You know, Mark just doesn't write that way. And then there seems to be a vocabulary style and structure of verses 9 through 20 that's not consistent with the rest of, of Mark's gospel. Matter of fact, there's 18 words in verses 9 through 20 that Mark doesn't use anywhere else, right? I mean, you know, well, your spouse probably knows if you're married or your close friends know that you have words that that you use often, right? And um, so for in, in 12 verses to have 18 words that Mark's never used before, that's weird. You know, so that just doesn't seem to, the vocabulary style doesn't seem to fit. Uh, for example, in verse 19, he uses the title uh, Lord Jesus. He doesn't use that title anywhere else in the Gospel of Mark. So I, I just you know don't think that would be the case. A commentator named Cranfield wrote um, on these different styles of, of words, he said, in style and vocabulary, they are obviously non-Marcan. Is that how you say that? Marcan? Marcan? Um, and then thirdly, the inclusion of these apostolic signs at the end, those don't fit into any of the other three Gospels. And um, those, those signs are mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, some of them are. Some of them aren't. You know, the, being able to pick up venomous snakes and drink deadly poison. We don't see that in Scripture unless this writer was possibly, some people think, uh, was referring to the time that the snake, you know, when uh, Paul was picking up firewood and the snake latched onto him. Maybe that was a reference to that. But you shouldn't base all of Scripture on one incident like that. And um, these uh, doctrines or practices... um, you can't have your doctrine relying on one thing like that. And I, I researched this just a little bit, this snake handling uh, preachers of, of the Appalachians. And, uh, you know, that's a prime example of taking something out of context and trying to make it biblical. And uh, so I looked into that a little bit. Have you all ever looked into the snake handling? There's actually one not too far from where Tim and Jonna live. The only one documented in Georgia. It's over there in Kinston, Georgia. And <laughs> I thought we ought to pop in there. I told my wife that yesterday. She said, you want to go check it out? And I said, well, I'm sure they don't do it every Sunday. It's got to be some kind of an event. But uh, so many of those, um, from what I read, uh, um, of the big proponents of it are, are dead. Because they actually got bit and died, you know. So it makes you kind of wonder. But... Um, and then it also is highly illegal to transport venomous snakes. So if you get pulled over for a taillight being out and you got a box of rattlesnakes in the back, you're going to jail. So you're breaking the law to even get the things to church. You know, I mean, you think about that. And, and then um, um, there was something else that was kind of ironic about it. Oh, the, uh, is anybody, what do you call somebody that studies snakes? 
crazy, but um, anyway, I don't like snakes. I, I'm sorry, guys, but I, they're in my yard. The, the, the gun's coming out. They're, I don't care if it's a good one. They're, the only good one's the one that doesn't have a head. But um, poisonous snakes that are in a weakened, underfed condition are not nearly as aggressive as a healthy one in a zoo or somewhere, and their venom is not near as strong. So it kind of puts a little damper on, the, and, and they normally a rattlesnake lives in the wild or in, in proper kept quarters uh, the, up to 10 years would be a, about the normal range. And these ones that these uh, churches use are, uh, you know, two years max. So they're very, very unhealthy snakes on top of that. So, um, you know, that that just shows how, you know, people can get, totally off base by not studying the scriptures the proper way, right? I mean, what are some other things that are like that today? What do you think? Just, you know, somebody that's not studying the scriptures the way that they should be. Any ideas? I think healings would be one, right? Um, You know, and, and that's talked about in this text as well. So, you know, just things to think about. Um, so, for our benefit, scholars have placed these types of things in our Bibles in brackets so we can approach the rest of Scripture the way that God wants us to. But then naturally arises within us, if Mark didn't write this section, well, then where did it come from? Right? Where, where did it come from? And back to my question of why did it end so abruptly? Right? Um, most people believe that this came somewhere in the mid-2nd century. Some guys were just sitting around, I guess, and, and thought, you know, we just don't like how abrupt Mark ends that gospel. So let's come up with a plan to make it seem like it's more uh, appropriate and, and it lines up more with uh, Matthew and Luke. Uh, nobody knows, there's no documentation as to who these scribes were. But, you know, it's, they got their material from other portions of the Bible. There's nothing that's there that's, except for those ap, uh, uh, apostolic gift things that's um, not in the rest of Scripture. But uh, John MacArthur said this, though, Though this ending reflects traditions from early church history, it is not part of the inerrant and authoritative Word of God. So... Uh, a good way for you and I to see verse 8 as the true ending of Mark's gospel is to understand that it's simply the ending that the Holy Spirit chose in his sovereign will to stop Mark's gospel, right? And if you really study Mark the way we have, you know, we come up with the the idea that that's exactly where it, it fits with Mark's style, you know, it, it may be abrupt, but it's not incomplete. I mean, Mark was that way the whole time, wasn't he? The way he strung things, uh, you know, he was just very, he, you know, he, he didn't draw things out, say it that way. The tomb was empty. The angelic announcement explained that Jesus had risen. And the multitude of eyewitnesses confirmed those facts. And Mark's done, right? Um, his sudden ending is it's very consistent. 
with his abrupt nature, even at the beginning, which what did he do? He Mark skipped the birth of Jesus, right? Goes straight into the preaching of John the Baptist in his ministry. And it fits, uh, this abrupt ending fits his disjointed style and, um, and it fits, you know, what is his repeated word? The most repeated word in Mark. Immediately. I've got these written down. Listen to these. 110. 12, 18, 20, 21, 28, 29, 30, 42, 43. 2, 8, 12, 3, 6, 4, 5, 15, 16, 17, 29, 5, 2, 29, 30, 42, 6, 25, 27, 45, 50, 54, 7, 25, 8, 10, 9, 15, 20, 24, 10, 52, 11, 2, 3, 14, 43, and 45, and 72, and 15, 1. So, you know, Mark's an immediate guy. We're done. Let's go. So, um, verse 8 does, to me, though, end on a very striking note. They were afraid. Well, you know, afraid of what? And, and again, I just don't know that that's the best English word for the, the original language that was there. But it, it, it really, if you compare Matthew 28, 8 with this, we, we see that these women were experiencing a bewildered astonishment mixed with profound joy. And, and that afraid there was just that, that, that wonderful thing that the English does no good with is that, that phrase, the fear of God, right? The reverence, the awe, the respect, the honor um, I, I love the word uh, awe, wonder. You know, when I was first saved and I was reading some old timers and, and I <coughs> came across the word awful, you know, and I thought, well, that's, what does this guy mean? There's no way that that's awful. Well, they weren't talking about the way my mind was going with awful being something bad. They were talking about being full of awe. We just don't speak that way anymore, do we? Um, I uh, I love to listen to Martin Indigno teach. You know, he uses a different, I don't know, would you say a different form of English? But if you're not thinking when he's teaching, um, he uses these words that we would just totally misunderstand, right? And and like if when he he would mean full of awe. You know, I guard myself in saying awful because people, I think they're going to think like me, you know, especially young people, you know, well, he just called God awful, you know, but, you know, that's, that's, that's what these women were, were experiencing here, right? They, they were full of wonder and amazement and awe. And, um, that again is a theme that is just permeates the gospel of Mark. I wrote down some references to that in, in uh, chapter 1 and verse 22. The crowds responded to Jesus' instruction by being amazed at his teaching. Um, in verse 127, as he was casting out unclean spirits, they were all amazed, it says. Uh, when he healed the paralyzed man, those who witnessed the miracle, quote, were all amazed and were glorifying God. That's in 2.12. In 4.41, his disciples became very much afraid. In 5.15, they became frightened. 
In 5.33, it says, quote, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her. In 5.42, they were completely astounded. In 6.51, they were utterly astonished by what he had done. In 9.6, Peter, James, and John at the Transfiguration became terrified. In 9.15, they were amazed by his presence. In 9.32, they were amazed when he confronted the rich young ruler. That was in 10.24, sorry. In in 10.32, Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. Even his enemies were amazed by him, including the the chief priests and the scribes in 11.18 and Pilate himself in 15.5. So after all those references, it's not surprising that the women would be amazed, right? In Paul's, I mean, in uh, Mark's writing. And um, throughout the gospel, he, he punctuated key events in the life of Jesus by emphasizing the wonder that Christ evoked in their hearts and, and minds. So, the narrative ends really where it ought to end, right? It climaxes with amazement and bewilderment at the resurrection of, of Christ, which, I mean, think if we were there, we would, we would be that, that way as well. So in doing this, Mark leaves us in a place of wonder, awe, and worship centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which is exactly where he started us out in chapter 1 and verse 1 about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John MacArthur calls this a fitting end to the Gospel of Mark, you know, that that he that we would be in wonder and awe, and hopefully we would be, as the centurion was, truly this is the Son of God, right? So that ends the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Tim Ryan's going to teach us next week on... Uh, He's going to kind of summarize the, uh, is that what you call it, a summary of Mark for us. Um, since he started us in that, um, we're a little bit early. I've got some more stuff here that kind of sparked my interest on this. Um, unless y'all want to have questions or about the whole Gospel of Mark, I probably don't have the answers, but we could come up with them collectively among all of us as we discuss this. Um, does anybody have any questions on that? Um, I have a comment. All right. Um, I just wanted to express, I mean, like, well, I know the Lord said, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest is love. And um, we had said in the beginning there that uh, believing comes by hearing and that by the word of God and, Mm -hmm. and just entrenching yourself in his truth and that we can hang on every word because um, it is in fact the truth. Um, but also, I mean, uh, you know, what is faith? I think it's Paul, and if you could maybe remind me, I was trying to look for it, where I think Paul says, you know, what is faith? And it's the substance of um, Hebrews, yeah. Hebrews, Hebrews 11. The substance of things not seen and the mm-hmm. evidence something like that. And to really grow in the faith and knowledge of the truth and and that that and then, you know, gives us the hope and and joy that we long for and fulfillment in this life, um, which comes out and expressing through love and and deeds. um, How would y'all 
summarize in one sentence the Christian life? Love God, serve others. Love God, serve others. That's a good one. Anybody else have one? Uh, bond servants to Christ. All right. Paul says yeah. we're no longer enslaved to sin. Uh, sure. Anybody else? How would you summarize the Christian life? Well, we got some more time now. You want me to tell you? I'll give you my question. It sparked me with Mary Magdalene. Uh, Luke 8 is actually scripture. um, And he talks about Mary and the seven demons. So, question. This is on the ACBC exam, too, if you... So here's your answer to the question. But you got to, on the ACBC exam, you have to give a page and a half answer, even though you could answer it in one word. But um, is there any place in biblical counseling for casting out demons? Simple answer would be what? No. Why? Because if you're a Christian, there's no way a demon can possess you, right? Okay, so if you're counseling somebody that you think may be possessed, then what do you do? Give them the gospel. gospel. (laughs) It's that simple. You evangelize and disciple, right? And I had a guy in the program years ago, and God is so good the way he worked this out in my life. Of, um, I mean, I got four pages of answer here, but I went a little overboard. The guy that graded my exam said, you must deal with this as long of an answer as you gave. But David Powelson wrote a book called Power Encounters, but... uh, it deals with this, but um, Colossians, I had a, this guy from South Carolina in the program, and one of his pastors called uh, me one time. This guy was an alcoholic, and he wanted to pick him up and take him to Florida to a, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, um, but it was one of these deliverance ministries, all right? Um, if you said the name, I'd probably remember it. Um, who are some of the guys that are more well-known than others with that. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, and, and he said, I, w- I would like to pick him up, you know, on Saturday, and we'll take him down there on Sunday to this deliverance thing and get this demon of alcohol out of him once and for all. Can I do that? And I said, no. And um, he said, well, why you, don't you believe in deliverance? And I said, well, absolutely I do. But I said, Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So that's the only deliverance we need, right? That's salvation. And I said, you know, what this guy needs is not some guy, you know, waving his hands over him, screaming at some demon to come out of him. What he needs to do is repent. Yes, sir? So, uh, what are your thoughts on... Um the Testament of Solomon. Um, I was doing some research this past week about demon possession, mm-hmm. specifically the seven demon exorcism that Christ provided mm-hmm. uh, Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's in the Bible, what, two times? Yeah. Two separate times? Yeah. So during my research, I read across this uh, statement where that Solomon actually enslaved demons to do his will. That's a little hard to believe, but I was rolling with it. Yeah. So, <laughs> the, 
the uh, text that they referenced was uh, the Testament of Solomon. What are your thoughts on that? I'm, first, let me say I'm not familiar with that text. I'll look at it and get back with you. But any time, I, I can say this with an affirmation, any time that, de- that exorcism, if you will, casting out, uh, is mentioned in Scripture, it is never a moral sin issue problem. All right, it's situational evil sometimes, and uh, sickness is definitely affiliated with that. But never, ever is it a sin issue. You know, so like for the guy I was talking about with the alcohol, definitely sin problem, right? I mean, that's what Scripture teaches us. So the answer to a sin problem is not a demon. It's repent, turn from your sin, you know, and if you're not a Christian, to place faith in Christ. So, But I'll look into the one on Solomon. But just rest assured, the Bible never shows a, an incidence of a demon possession being affiliated with sin. Is that all right? Everybody okay with that? All right, so... Um, yeah. So, how do we turn from the, the deliverance and the power of Satan? Really, the answer to that is when we turn from darkness to light. All right. Anything else? Well, just a couple of thoughts mm-hmm. on the authenticity of the scripture. Yes, sir. On that text or scripture no, period. Mm-hmm. I was on a roll. Second Timothy three sixteen. There you go. Yeah. Tells us that all scripture mm-hmm. is God inspired. Mm-hmm. And then it goes on and tells us why for instruction, correction, reproof, and correction or leading into righteousness. Mm-hmm. So that means God the Spirit in me is leading me and teaching me. He's the third person of God, the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And it was inspired by God. And how I know that that works is because it communicates to me. It corrects me. When I sin, I get convicted. In other words, it's all um, it's all I need. Mm-hmm. And then in 1 John 2, you said before, does shame always speak the truth? Well, if he didn't, and I'm a believer... First John 2 says, I write these things to you who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. You have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So there again, the Spirit of God, through shame and his teaching, would check me if in fact He's an heir, and mm-hmm. he's gone off somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I just wouldn't be able to sit under that. Yeah. And, by the way, that same spirit would do it to Shane, too, right? Yeah. And there was uh, there's one time since I've known Pastor Shane that he, uh, that's the beauty of, of expository preaching, is he's always right there, Right. And there was one time in the 15 years that, that he's been preaching here that he came back the next Sunday and he didn't 
refute what he said, but he, he brought more clarity to it. He said that the Holy Spirit showed him that he needed to, to bring further clarity for us into what he was talking about. So that's the same Spirit did that. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, isn't God just so awesome that he just so clearly puts it that way in that Second Timothy passage, right? This is for teaching. Do, well, is there anybody that doesn't need to be taught? You know, no, you know, it's, it's for correction, for reproof for training, you know, I mean, that sounds almost like parenting, doesn't it, you know, as we parent our children, God parents us through his word, you know, you know, I, I thank him for the, the ability to read, you know, then, I mean, think of ministries, those kind of thoughts just to me, just make me love ministries like, like Wycliffe Bible Translators so much more, these guys are just diligently pouring themselves year after year into getting the Bible in languages of other uh, tongues, you know, other, other, other languages of other, other people groups. And wouldn't it be awesome to be a part of that, you know, to be able to be, you know, what if we all had a committee and we sat, you know, we don't have to do that because we got English, but, you know, could you imagine being part of a group like that to sit around and look at the original word and then talk among yourselves as to, Wow, you know, this would best communicate to our people by if we said it this way. And that's God teaching and preserving his word. Uh, and, of course, the, uh, the, the chance for, for making errors as time went by is uh, the, the printing press. Once that came on the scene, you know, now we're not hand scribing. You know, it's, it's all done uh, through the printing press. So, yeah, those are good. That Second um, Timothy three sixteen seventeen 17 is a, a foundational memory verse, right? That's, that's one of the, the first ones we all ought to have. So, anybody else? All right, well, thanks for your time. Well,